So good evening, LCM! Good evening! You know, the only thing that we could think of that would be more amazing than doing Ezra 3 once was to do it twice! Oh, yeah! Woo. Tonight, we're going to cover the chapter in the context of the historical narrative. And while we do it, we'll expand on the pertinent connections that aid in your interpretation. Then, we're going to go back through the chapter a second time yes. so that you can make a direct application to your lives yes. and learn from the examples set forth in the historical narrative. So we're doing it two times. Some of these big boys, they take two. Some commentators, some commentators, some commentators have an unnecessarily harsh view of Ezra and Nehemiah. Our feeling is that that's simply because they didn't seek first to understand the historical narrative prior to trying to make an application. In other words, you can't decide what you want it to say and then grade them based on your presupposed desire. You need to understand what it said to the original audience and then make applications. Our view is quite simple. It's really that the people contained within the story are the point of the story. That's it. That it may apply to you, but since it's their story, it first applies to them. <laughs> Any applications that we draw will be from that perspective, and it makes us simply a beneficiary of their story. We will not attempt to make ourselves the point. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13. In verse 11, he said, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. The us in that passage that Paul is referring to is the early Messianic community, starting with Israel and then including the mysterious Gentile graftins. That's us. Come on. Generations of Israelites are served by the example of their own forefathers, and we Graftons are served by that example as well. Amen. Amen. Say amen. Amen. Now notice Paul's application in the next verses, starting in verse 12 here. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Guys, the obstacles, the trials, the challenges that the believing community in Ezra and Nehemiah face, they're not isolated to that generation alone. Wow. While their historical setting is unique, the temptations and the trials they're common to all men yeah. and especially applicable to the believing community in every age, including our believing community. Yeah. Tonight, we hope to give you a better grasp of the circumstances that Zerubbabel and Israel faced. After that, we hope to aid you in understanding the numerous ways that their example should inform your daily lives. Amen. So before we move on to our review of previous sessions, we're going to hint briefly at a concept that your appreciation for must grow 
East Hebrews 9, we're going to pick up in verse 21. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So tonight, you will find out that the believing community of Ezra and Nehemiah started in the right place. In fact, their example is one that must be followed or your service to God is useless. We got your attention now? Yes. Tonight, you also find out that they followed a divine pattern that is not changed regardless of a person's perspective on dispensations. And tonight, you will fall in love with the faith that is displayed in Ezra and Nehemiah and be inspired to imitate it practically and perpetually. Come on. We are excited to share what we have with you this evening. First, we want to begin our brief review. So I have a slide for you that you've seen every week up to this point, and you will see every week after this point as well. So first of all, we have Zerubbabel, who led a returning wave of Israel that restored the heart of the nation. Then we had Ezra, who arrived about 80 years after Zerubbabel had, and 60 years after the completion of the temple to lead a reform that restored the soul of the nation. Then finally... Nehemiah came in a third wave of about about 90 years after Zerubbabel's initial arrival and roughly 70 years after the completion of the temple to restore the strength of the nation. As this should be connected in your minds to the function of the Tanakh itself. The Tanakh itself restores the heart, the soul, and the strength of any man who would believe. This should also immediately remind you of the prophecy regarding the future of Israel that is contained in Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. Amen. Amen. Last week... You learn that all 12 tribes of Israel were present in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. You might remember this slide, the 12 tribes of Israel. The first verse on it will be our first verse tonight. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then in Ezra 6, 17... For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. So it's not necessary for us to go back through two hours of teaching that proved this truth beyond any reasonable contestation. We posted the notes and the teaching for you. Instead, at this point, we trust that you've accepted it or that you have decided to be wrong on purpose. Either are okay with us. As you're looking at this next slide, 
This slide is going to be useful for you in keeping some of the key dates and the time frames aligned in your thinking. Yeah, it's true. So the third siege of Jerusalem that destroyed the temple, it occurred in 586 B.C. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in 539 B.C. Zerubbabel and his companions returned under the Edict of Cyrus in 539, 538 B.C., the temple was completed in 516 B.C., which was 70 years after its destruction, as God foretold. Wow. Now, Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah, they were all working in the 23-year period between the Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple. Ezra will arrive in Jerusalem in the 450s to reform the people and to teach them the Torah. Nehemiah will arrive in Jerusalem in the 440s to rebuild the wall and the city. Man, that slide really, really helps you gain some perspective about where we are in history and what's going on before and after. Now, as simplistic as it might sound, we should not overlook the fact that the names of Ezra and Nehemiah, they actually help us to understand Adonai's perspective on the events that are recorded in this book. We have this slide that you might remember. So Ezra's name means help. Somebody say help. Help. Okay? Nehemiah's name says Jehovah comforts. Jehovah has consoled the comfort of God, i.e. the aid of the Lord. It has roots in two words, the first being to comfort and the second being Jehovah or Yahweh. So Ezra Nehemiah, according to this slide and according to the names and their meanings. This book is about Adonai helping and comforting his people because his plan of redemption for them was set from the foundations of the world and it cannot be altered. Amen. There is hope and comfort for Israel. Amen. Amen. There are a couple of focal points that are Israel-centric and should never be divested of that characteristic as you seek to make some spiritual applications. This slide from our first session will remind you. Jerusalem and the temple. The city of Jerusalem is a key focal point in these books because this city represents the land from which the Jews were taken into exile in Babylonia and to which they now return. The city and its location are sometimes used synonymously as in Ezra 2.1 where we find Jerusalem and Judah. And in Ezra 4.6, where they are cited in the reverse order, and can you guess it? Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem was important because of its political significance as a capital city. But it was most important to the Jews because it was in Jerusalem that the temple was located. This, This building is referred to by several different expressions. For example, a house at Jerusalem, Ezra 1.2, the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, Ezra 1.4. The house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, from Ezra 5.15. And the temple of the Lord, Ezra 3.6. The twin themes of, a, of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and of rebuilding the temple are central to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. There is, accordingly, frequent reference to work, yes. Nehemiah 2.16, to the work of rebuilding and to the finishing of the work. The goal of completing the task is kept in focus as an important theme in the 
narrative. Oh, yeah. yeah. So saints, while using terms like Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple, ought to be blatantly declare every man that it is about a specific nation, blatant that it's about a specific family and a specific people called Israel. These terms have obvious meanings, but they're often diluted in metaphors and in mystical interpretations. That's right. It's the truth of the matter. You don't hear anything of the sort from this pulpit, but it is the majority of what you will hear if you look outside these walls. It is true that a Jerusalem from above is being built on earth as Revelation portrays it, and that other nations are included with Israel. But it is never true that these central Israel identifiers can be removed, replaced, or reinterpreted to mean Gentiles to the exclusion of Israel Amen. or without Israel. The salvation story centers on a place called Jerusalem that is a physical locality and a real people called Israel and the mixed multitude that becomes included in their story. So lastly, in our review... It's important that you pay careful attention to the theme of joy. We're going to talk about it a lot this evening. Watch y'all practice with me. Give yourself a facelift. There you go. Let let heaven pull the corners of your mouth upward. It's, It's an enlivening experience. Now, we have to warn you, some of the verses that we'll read tonight have been so badly misconstrued for such a long period of time that when we interpret them properly, it is going to feel slightly off to you. The interpretation's not off. You are. You're going to discover tonight that the historical narrative makes the interpretation crystal clear. Finally, having the proper interpretation, you're going to be compelled on a very personal level to live differently because of it. So I want to go over a slide with you that we introduced that I know didn't make an impact on you. But after tonight, my hope is that it will. Another theme is the joy that is associated with the events that have great significance, especially for the religious life of the Jewish community. The laying of the temple foundation is marked by joy. As are the dedication of the temple in Ezra 6.16, the celebration of the Passover in Ezra 6.22, the public reading of the law in Nehemiah 8.10-12, and the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 12.43. With that in mind, we want to begin in heartfelt and earnest prayer. I know you guys have been praying since we got here, but we just got here. Yeah, we we have. We want to pray with you. So can we have Nolan stand up and pray for us, brother? Come on, Mighty God, we're asking that you would stir our hearts tonight. Father, we're asking that you would be the revealer of mysteries to our hearts tonight. Father, that prayers would be answered. Mighty King, that your sovereign hand would come and reveal mysteries that are an answer, are a key to walking out, Father, this life with you on this earth. Father, we want to be revealed to this world, mighty King, as representatives of you. Father, would you make an impact on us, that we might make an impact on this world, on this earth, on our families, and in the nations around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Justin's going to get us kicked off, but to be clear, 
We're avoiding personal application during our first read-through. We're going to help you with historical application. Then we'll do it again. Amen. Let's start off where all good foundations start and have Miss Jen read Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the, the man of God. Despite their fear, of, <coughs> sorry, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings and prescribed for that each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred, sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by King Cyrus, King of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites, 20 years of age and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his son, and the descendants of Hodviah, and the son of Hinadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments, with trumpets and with the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to yeah. Israel endures forever. All of the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard far away. All right. So as we mentioned, we're going to go through this chapter twice. We're going to do our historical narrative first. We're going to avoid any practical application. And then we're going to go through it again and make practical application. But as we go through the historical narrative, pay careful attention to what we're saying because it's going to unlock things for you in the practical application. So being that Linton is not here, we're going to have Pastor Wade pick up in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the 
people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Man. You know, any person in the original audience, they would immediately connect the seventh month with the events contained in the seventh month of Israel's calendar. Because they are Israel. This would be easier for them than connecting Christmas with December for you. (laughs) You know, God is the one who designed Israel's calendar. He is the one that determined the events of the seventh month. We want to show you a slide to refresh your memory of what is occurring in this time frame. So on this slide, we have our seven feasts of Israel. Our first one, we're going to read the Hebrew names on the left, correspondent to the English name, and then we're going to tell you the time of the year on the right. So our first feast is Pesach. The English name is Passover, and this occurs on the 14th of Nisan, which is the first month in Israel's calendar. Our second feast is Chag Hamatzot, which is unleavened bread. It occurs on the 15th of Nisan, a day later in the first month. Now our third feast is Bikurim, or Reshit, that is first fruits in English. It occurs also in the month of Nisan, the first month. Then we move to Shavuot, which is 50 days later. That in English is weeks or Pentecost. It, it occurs in the month of Sivan. That is 50 days after first fruits in the third month in the calendar. Then we have a break. We go down to Yom Teruah, or Rosh Hashanah, whichever you subscribe to, which is trumpets or New Year's in English. That occurs on the first of Tishri, which is the seventh month. There it is. Then we have after that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in English, which is the 10th of Tishri, also in the seventh month, as the time our text is taking place tonight. At last, we get to Sukkot, which is tabernacles and booths in English, and it occurs on the 15th of Tishri, also in the seventh month. Wow. So while you're looking at this slide... It's going to be clear to you that Ezra and Nehemiah is picking up in anticipation of the three feasts, the three bottom feasts that take place in the seventh month. This is the context of where we're picking up in Ezra chapter 3. They've just come out of the sixth month, the month called Elul, which is historically a time of introspection and self-reflection in preparation for these three feasts. This is done every year to prepare the heart of the nation for the sounding of the trumpet during Yom Teruah. Then comes the atonement of the entire nation. And then comes the celebration of Sukkot, where sacrifices are made for all 70 nations of the world. And Israel is seen as no longer traveling, but as having arrived in the promise. Amen. So the next phrase in the verse is, the people assembled as one man. Say one man. One One man. man. One man in Jerusalem. Would have been far more profound to the original audience than than it is to a modern audience. When we hear this, our tendency is to think of basic unity. However, faithful Jews recite the Shema daily as a statement regarding the nature of God. This may sound familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So the people assembled as one man (coughs) is imitative of a God characteristic. 
the people are assembled in a manner consistent with the attributes of the God of Israel. Yeah. That is more than just basic unity. Yeah. So we have a slide for you uh, from the United Bible Society. It advises translators to consider translating the phrase into various languages. So this is on Ihad. <coughs> the people gathered is one man. The Hebrew word for the people is inclusive of the whole community. You can see that in Ezra 1.3. The whole clause emphasizes the fact that the entire community assembled or came together for a common purpose and with a common concern. Ooh. Nehemiah 8.1. A common purpose and a common concern. So the opening verses of her chapter places the tribes of Israel in God-like unity, Amen. as in reflecting Him in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the excitement that would invoke in the original reader who was accustomed to hearing the phrase, this phrase, throughout the Tanakh? We've come from exile and they're hearing about them reflecting God in Jerusalem. Exodus 24, verse 3, says this. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Yeah. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Look at the foot of Sinai. The multitude, containing millions, had a common concern and a common purpose between them so that they could be described as having a singular voice of obedience. And he had, this is the kind of imagery, imagery that is associated with Ezra 3 in the very first verse. So when you hear that they assembled as one man, well... You might think the Democratic National Convention, they all assemble, they might all be saying the same thing, but they are not unified in their heart, in their voice. Ah. Same is true of Republicans. They might be unified around a singular negative thing, like no more orange man, but they are not unified <laughs> around the promises of God. Yeah. This phrasing is intended for the reader to reflect on other times in Israel's history where they have an ehad voice, an ehad heart, ehad action. And the first thing that they would do is go in their mind to the giving of the law in Exodus 24. That in and of itself is setting the stage for something that is beautiful in this chapter. A God-like unity because there's about to be theophany of some kind. Oh, yeah. That takes us to the way that the prophets spoke about it. And there are hundreds of these references. We just picked a few. Use an Englishman's concordance and go through Ehud and you'll figure it out. Sometimes the word one is nowhere in the passage because it simply says with your whole heart or with singleness of mind or with singleness of action. That's because it's a difficult phrase to translate. The key parts of it, though, are that you always have equal and the same concern and you have equal and the same commitment to what the Lord wants to do. Amen. That is Ehad. So Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 38. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them singleness, or Ehad, of heart and action, so that they will always fear me, and that all will go well with them, and for their children after them. 
I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. So when Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would have singleness of heart, the Hebrew phrase is ichad or oneness of heart. If you're reading Ezra, then no doubt the reader of Ezra in chapter 3 and verse 1, learning of Israel assembling for the first time in 50 years at least as one man and remembering that Jeremiah had said this, what would you be hoping for? The words of Jeremiah are coming true. Now, in some sense, this was the beginning of the words of Jeremiah coming true. But the original audience would have engaged it that way. They wouldn't just say, oh, okay, so they were all kind of together. They would have heard it like, this is like the law being given at Sinai. This is what Jeremiah said. Listen to how Ezekiel says it. In Ezekiel 37, verse 19, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood, an echad stick of wood, and they will become echad in my hand. You see, Ezekiel prophesied, he had prophesied that the tribes would become a single echad stick of wood, that they would become one echad in his hand. Any of the original audiences reading Ezra and Nehemiah, they would have seen Israel assembling as one man, and they would have hoped for this moment to be what Ezekiel was talking about. It would have immediately drawn immediate conclusions to the prophets and to what Moses said. The point is that the imagery is far more than Israel just being together, like singing Kumbaya and and having s'mores. They have survived captivity at this point. And they are filled with a common concern and a common purpose so that they seem to be acting as a plural unity. This is the big moment where they're all together. And this is just like the nature of the God of Israel. He is one. The exact same imagery occurs throughout Ezra and Nehemiah at monumental events to emphasize the condition of the people in a very, very favorable light and as being moved upon by Adonai's own hand. So our next example comes from Ezra Nehemiah. This is an example of Echad from Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribes to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So here you can see the whole community in Nehemiah. They were acting in common concern, in common purpose. They were together in what they were doing, and they came together to do it together. They assembled as one man just to hear the law, just to watch Ezra speak the law and to absorb it and to do it. These events are reminiscent all the way back to Sinai, where the same wording was used. When we're, what we're pointing to tonight 
are hopeful moments. They begin to look like what Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesied, and we're seeing them, at least in part, begin to come to fruition in these writings here. But that's not it. The word ikad is often translated into Greek as homothumadon. That's right. It conveys the same concept. The Newer Testament carries on the same tradition in passages like Acts chapter 1, verse 14. So this is Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and we're looking at the Greek word homothumadon, homothumadon. <coughs> it's kind of whatever, whatever sounds best to you so you remember it and that you tie it to the Hebrew word ihad. So picking up in verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So when Luke wrote this, it is on top of the long history of the beautiful Ehad moments in Israel. The times that Israel had one heart, one voice, one concern, and one purpose. The point is that like in times past, these believing Jews were in godlike unity oh, here in yeah. Acts 1. What Ezra is recording in chapter 3, verse 1, should be seen in the same light. A remnant of the nation in Ehad, with the goal of bringing every member of the nation into the same state of being. That is true in Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is also true in Acts. That's true. So Acts chapter 2, to continue, verses 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So again, these are believing Jews that are assembled as one man. In a dynamic sense, you could even say they were as one man in this place, praying. Something amazing begins to happen when these believers crowd together in this manner. What Ezra is recording in chapter 3, verse 1, should be seen in the same light as this Pentecost event. The same light of a remnant of a nation that is in true Ehad. Ehad with the goal of bringing every other member of the nation into the same state of being that they have now inherited. This is true in Ezra and Nehemiah, and it is true throughout the book of Acts. So we're going to pick up with a few more in Acts. And I know you're familiar with these words because we've taught on them for many years. But what would be easy to miss is because homothumadon is a cognate for Ehad, it should draw to mind for a Jewish audience other moments of Ehad and what God did. And it was always a remnant of the people that were in such unity with God and each other that it drew the rest of the nation to them and into the same unity. You miss that when you read Acts. You miss it because you think that it's just about Christians being in unity. But it's not. It's demonstrably that they were Jews walking in the footsteps of their forefathers like Ezra, Nehemiah, and it was intended to bring the rest of the nation into it. So Acts 2, 46. Every day they continued to Ehad or Homothumadon in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those 
who were being saved. Do you see how it had an additive effect? By the way, everyone added was a Jew. This can be demonstrated throughout the book of Acts and is built upon the long and beautiful history of Israel's Ehad moments, just like the one that we're reading about tonight in Ezra 3.1. In both cases, a remnant of the nation is already in Ehad, but the goal is to bring every member of the nation into that same state of being. Now, you might be able to clearly see it in Acts. What we want you to do is clearly be able to see it in the book of Ezra because they're related. Acts 4.24 is another Ichad moment. When they heard this, they raised their voices in Ichad, in Homothumadon, in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is another one of those beautiful moments in Israel's history where they have one purpose, one concern, and they're actually interceding so that people can be joined to their company. What kind of miracle would it be if every church in Houston... Yeah. Now, let's just back up. Come on. Every church in Sugarland. Now, let's back up again. Every church surrounding Town West had one concern, one purpose and was speaking with a singular voice. Would you not consider that becoming more like Christ? Well, in Ezra, you need to see it as becoming more like the God of Israel. The people are beginning to reflect him. Uh, In light of that, listen to Acts 5.12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers (laughs) used to Ehad in Solomon's colony. All the believers came together in this kind of oneness, in this kind of unity. This is another Ichad moment. And the movement that was happening here in the first century was so powerful because all the believers were participating in this kind of Ichad together. Yeah, let's do one more. This is Acts 15, 25 and 26. So we all agreed. We Ichaded. We (laughs) homothumadon. To choose some men and send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the assembly of believing Jews that met in Jerusalem to decide whether or not to include Gentiles in the community, they were in an Ehad moment. How cool is that? So as we go back, go back to Ezra 3.1, remember that Israel being assembled as one man is meant to imply a divine moment that's occurred. Your anticipation for what happens next would be very high at its highest if you were in the original audience. So let's go ahead and pick up in verse 2. So Pastor Wade's going to pick up in in verse 2, and we're going to clearly keep moving and not make personal application until we go through a second time. And you should consider that in Acts 15... The believing community was Jewish in Jerusalem. And they were singular in their heart, singular in their voice, singular in their action about your inclusion. I wonder what would happen. Well, we'll do applications later. (laughs) But I do wonder what would happen if Gentiles that are believers were ehad or homothumadon about the goal of God for Israel. 
Let's, let's go to, uh, to our second verse because we're going to have to keep moving. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So there are a few things here that we'd like to point out. To start with, some translations say associates, and some say brothers. The fact is that both are true in this passage. These men are associates with each other and that they have a common concern, a common purpose, a common goal, and they are brothers, being of the same familial lines. Now, in addition to that, the phrase that Ezra uses, that again evokes powerful imagery, is the phrase, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. We want to consider a few occurrences with you at this point. All right. So our topic is what Moses, the man of God, said. Deuteronomy 12.4. You all listening? You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of all your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and Rejoice. What are they supposed to do? In everything you have put your hand to. Because the Lord your God has blessed you. Almost five centuries before there ever was a temple, Moses told Israel that they would have to go to a specific place in order to make offerings, sacrifices, and special gifts. Now, in the book of Ezra... We are back at that place. And Ezra writes in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. There had been a 50-year absence of the ability to do this. The temple has been destroyed five decades. Israel is assembled in Ichad. And is in the very specific place called Jerusalem that offerings are to be offered and accepted. This could not be done from Babylon. This could not be done from Persia. This cannot be done in New York in a Reformed Judaism. God declared that it must be done in Jerusalem. And you know what? He brought them together as one man, and for the first time in 50 years, they are able to do it again. Now look at verse 7 very intently. You and your families shall eat and shall rejoice. This is a command. No different than the the command to sacrifice was a command. Rejoicing was to accompany every activity involved in this chapter. 
the original audience knew the words of, quote, Moses, the man of God. You know, it's so interesting that Ezra chose to use the words, what was written in the law, written by Moses, the man of God. Now, why would he use that? Well, maybe it's because of Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. Surely it is you who love the people. All the holy ones are in your hand. At your feet they all bow down. And from you receive instruction. The law that Moses gave us, the possession of the assembly of Jacob. You see, Moses, the man of God, prophesied based on events in the past and events that would happen in the future. His prophecy was a blessing to Israel. The Lord would meet with them in Echad moments, and he would give them instruction, as written by Moses, the man of God. In Ezra, we are seeing another iteration in the cycle of the Lord helping and comforting his people. They have assembled as one man in a way reminiscent of Sinai, and they are operating in obedience in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In every respect, this is the most optimistic thing that has happened in 50 years, and it is a cause for great rejoicing. Now remember, Deuteronomy 12 commanded rejoicing. Okay, so you guys got that. Now, we need to discuss something. We need to discuss the very, very first thing that was addressed by God's nation. And then we need, to do, we need to discuss who did it. Guys, before there was a wall, think about it. No wall present. Before there was a temple, no temple present. They started with the restoration of the altar as their first and primary goal and importance. Guys, this is overt recognition of the first and the primary problem. The nation had been disciplined for their failure to obey the law. That's what brought their discipline in the very first place. And now they're taking great pains to make sure that they are obedient to the law. While this may seem archaic or maybe even insignificant to modern Christians... This particular action demonstrably illustrates that Israel recognized their primary problem as sin itself. And all other problems were derived from that primary issue and that primary problem alone. It's a really good thing that we're only making historical application right now. (laughs) So in light of this, we're going to look at Hebrews in order to understand the other reasons for this particular order. All right, so this might sound familiar from the beginning of our study. Hebrews 9, picking up in verse 21. In the same way, (coughs) excuse me, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed 
was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The altar had to be the starting place because sin was the primary problem. However, the altar also had to be the starting place because every other item in the temple would have to be cleansed or purified by the blood of an animal killed on the altar and the water of cleansing. This isn't a chicken or the egg scenario. Everything starts with the altar. How could they build a temple with items if they were not purified? They had to have an altar first. But we're not going to make personal applications here. Even though we could. That's going to be on our second pass of the chapter tonight. But you should know historically that Zechariah will utter these words in just a few years from the setting of this chapter. Because those we're picking up in Zechariah. Remember that the law prophesied these things in advance. That the law itself is the foundation of the Tanakh. It's the heart of the Bible. And all of this starts with an altar that is what you're bringing your heart to. Yeah. Zechariah 3.3 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. Wow. I'm going to send my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So again, Joshua is the high priest in Israel during Ezra and Greek. And under his leadership, the whole nation is acting in ikad, supernatural reflection of God. Obedience to the law is reestablished. And Zechariah says, uh, you guys are men, symbolic of things that are to come. When I send my servant the branch. Do you know anybody that the book of Hebrews calls a high priest, perhaps in the order of Melchizedek? Are you going to talk to us tonight, who? Ezra also makes it clear that Joshua was acting in accordance with a man named Zerubbabel, who is, of course, from the royal line of David and of the tribe of Judah. Do you know anyone that the book of Revelation calls the son of David or perhaps the lion of the tribe of Judah? What's his name, church? Jesus. Jesus! Our point is that the events you're reading about are monumentally important and not just an archaic sacrificial system. This is the reconstitution of the heart of the nation. Everything starts with the altar of God. Everything else is useless if you do not. But they started with the altar because the sacred must precede security or it is not sacred at all. 
I don't want you all to just fog over here. You cannot have any other item in the temple if the altar is not there to sanctify it. Find the Ark of the Covenant wouldn't help. (laughs) Build a temple ten times the size of Solomon's wouldn't help. You have to have blood from the animal on the altar and the water of cleansing. Everything starts with the altar. But it gets better than that. You're reading about Jeshua or Joshua or Yeshua, all the same word. In the Septuagint, it's always Jesus, in other words, Jesus. And Zechariah tells you the events you're reading about right now in Ezra 3 are symbolic of things to come. It is forecasting what God will do with Israel through the one called Branch or who history calls the Netzarene. Come on. on. Consider something else. Yeah, if y'all aren't impressed with that, it's okay. I mean, I don't think you'll find it in your study notes, but whatever. Consider that Abraham, Joshua, David, in other words, men who embody the law, the prophets, and the writings, they, uh, they all did something. And ask yourself why they did not start with a temple or an institution. We're going to start in Genesis 12 in verse 6. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. Yeah, Shechem's a special place. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. That's pretty good, isn't it? So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, Abram knows that he is destined to inherit the whole land. But his very first act upon hearing it is to start with an altar. The altar is always the place to start. And it's the thing from which every other worthwhile thing grows. Or it's not worthwhile. That's Maybe that's just Abraham, though. Maybe. Maybe it stops with Abraham. Well, let's look at Joshua 8, 30 through 32. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. How about that? As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, he built it, in accord- he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. So you see, it's not just Moses. Joshua and the community were going to drive out every enemy within the land of Israel. They had in their possession the decrees about the temple worship in Deuteronomy. They knew it was going to happen. They did not start with those things, though. They started with an altar as soon as they got into the land and a physical reminder of what was written in the law. You see, the altar is always the place to start and the thing from which every other thing worth having grows from that. So Abraham started with an altar. Joshua started with an altar. What about David? This is 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 22. David said to him, Let me have the site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord. 
that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Aruna said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all of this. But King David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that cost me nothing. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Come on. Guys, right here, David knows something. A revelation that you're getting tonight. He knew that the answer to any plague on the people always began with an altar. Even when he was purchasing the Temple Mount, he still started with the altar. Now, question for you. Did David build the temple? No. Come on, did David build the temple? No. He did not build the temple. But he did build an altar, guys. The altar is always the place to start. And the thing from which every other thing worth having grows. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they started where Abraham, Joshua, and David started before them. The heart and foundation of the nation of Israel is the altar. How about verse 3? Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. So just like their forefathers before them, these Israelites are surrounded by hostilities and yet place the sacred before security. Here's how the pulpit commentary illustrated the context of their situation. This is really good, by the way. (laughs) This is special. Though the exiles had permission from Cyrus to raise up not only their altar, but their temple, it was not at all certain that his nominal subjects would passively submit. It was as if a modern Turkish sultan should decree the erection of a Christian altar in a grand Christian cathedral at Kerbela or Busora toward the verge of his empire. There would be great danger in acting on such a decree. Burn offerings, morning and evening. So the law required. You can see that in Exodus 29, verse 38. Look, I, I'm not sure that y'all caught the impact of that. So let's, let's go ahead and put it in a modern historical context. Still not applying it to your lives. We'll do that later. <laughs> right now, Erdogan in Turkey has a change of heart. And he's like, you know what? I really think that those guys from LCM should probably build a sanctuary at the Hagia Sophia. I think that that should... Yes, I will allow that. I'll even pay for their airline tickets. Would we not still be in danger of all of the inhabitants of Turkey that are under Erdogan's rule but might not like it? That is the situation Ezra and Nehemiah are in. Look, so on that note, at least in the NIV, the exact phrase, do not be afraid, appears 53 (laughs) times in the Tanakh and 16 times in the Newer Testament. 
that does not even take into account all of the possible variations of the phrase. Now, the book of Deuteronomy has at least 10 direct statements about fear, and we have a sampling for you. I'm going to pick up with you in Deuteronomy 1, verse 17. Do not show partiality in judging. You're both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. Yeah. We're going to do them rapid fire. Deuteronomy 121. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up. Take possession of it. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Deuteronomy 129. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord said to me, do not be afraid of him. For I have handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. Deuteronomy 3.22. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. Deuteronomy 7.18. But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Deuteronomy 18.22. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. Oh. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Wow. Deuteronomy 12, 20, verse 1. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Deuteronomy 20 verse 3. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. Deuteronomy 31 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Back around to me. Deuteronomy 31, <laughs> verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Yeah. So why are we doing this? <laughs> because they knew these verses. In fact, when Jesus says, do not be afraid, I'll be with you to the very end of the ages, this is what he's referring to. Come on. So think again on how Ezra 3.3 picks up, despite their fear. Well, that was to let you know that they were afraid, and yet they were acting in complete obedience. Perhaps the good father knew the propensity for fear and was describing the need to overcome it as a vital in primary step in restoring the heart of the nation. Everything starts at the altar. And one of the very first sacrifices that Israel gets to make on the altar is their own fear. Time's not going to permit us to go into the foundation of an altar. However, it seems that the original foundation stones of Solomon's altar were still identifiable. Yeah. The altar was constructed on 
that foundation, the actual foundation of the altar, however, is called Mishpat and Zedekah, the justice and righteousness of God. You want to have a good Saturday afternoon? Yeah. Do a word study on those two occurrences of those two Hebrew words everywhere that they appear together, and you will be blessed for it. The last thing that we want to point out as we move to verse 4 is that verse 3 specifically mentions both morning and evening sacrifices. This means that they were quite literally all in. All day, every day, without exception or exclusion, they faced their fear and used the altar as the first and primary step in dealing with their nation's problems. These men are doing something that almost no one alive had ever seen within their lifetimes. They read it in the word and performed it in their lives. They read it in the word and performed it in their lives. After a 50 year absence, they grabbed hold of what the word of God says and they brought it to reality on earth. Let's go to verse 4. Then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. So here, we're mentioning the Feast of Tabernacles. What you need to know about that is the Feast of Tabernacles is one out of three regalia feasts, where all men are commanded to go up to Jerusalem to participate. But here, mentioning tabernacles is inclusive of Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur. The emphasis is on tabernacles because they could not complete all that was required for Yom Kippur. The temple was not yet standing, and they did not possess the ark and the mercy seat. Nonetheless, they did not wait for obedience. They started in full obedience wherever it was possible to do so. Pick up in verse 5. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. So here... Ezra is letting us know that obedience began at an altar for the nation, and it moved, moved into these daily, these monthly, and these annually prescribed sacrifices. The picture is one of total return, total return to the ancient pathway laid down for them by Moses. We had daily sacrifice that made atonement for the people. Then there was monthly and annual sacrifices being made for the atonement and the redemption of the nation. Then there were free will offerings that began to flow into Jerusalem because the people wanted to respond with their own free will obedience to these things. In the next verse, in verse 6, you're going to be given more detail about how this began in the seventh month and the order that things So verses 1 through 5 gave us kind of an overview. And verse 6 is going to zoom back in to the first day. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Wow. 
So worship and obedience began before the foundation of the temple. That is because the true foundation of the temple is worship and obedience, and it begins at the altar where everything else is completely worthless. Aren't you glad we're not making personal applications right now? <laughs> On with our historical narratives in verse 7. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Now that may have meant absolutely nothing to you, but any member of the original audience would immediately... <laughs> Recognize that these events are parallel to the preparation for building Solomon's temple. Yeah. You're going to find out down to the materials and ports. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 8 says this, Send me also cedar, juniper, and algum logs from Lebanon, for I know that your servants are skilled in cutting timber there. My servants will work with yours to provide me with plenty of lumber, because the temple I must build, I build must be large and magnificent. I will give your servants, the woodsmen who cut the timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of olive oil. Talk about working for food. Verse 11, Hiram, king of Tyre, replied by letter to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you their king. Since the parallels are obvious, and that the same regions are again supplying the same materials for the construction of the temple. The workers are also being paid in the same way, types of food that they needed. Second Chronicles 2 verse 15 is going to continue. Now let my Lord send his servants the wheat and barley and the olive oil and the wine he promised. Yeah. And we will all cut the logs from Lebanon that you need and we'll float them as rafts by sea down to Joppa. You can take them up to Jerusalem. The materials even came through the same port as they did in Solomon's day. Now, if you want to take the time to develop a more full understanding of the parallels, then go read 1 Kings 5. You'll probably pick up many other parallels. We have to keep moving tonight. But this path that is being laid down in Ezra is very deliberate. And it's conveying a specific concept. The idea is that what is being built right now is completely and totally in accordance with the method and the manner of the original. There are no new innovations. It's actually a return to the ancient path that they had left. Amen. And it's a resounding message. Adonai is doing it again! Yeah. Let's go to verse 8. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers and Kadmael and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, hmm. and the sons of Hanadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. 
Now, notice that verse 8 moves us forward in time by seven months. Verses 1 through 7, we're in the seventh month of the previous year. Now we're in the second month of the next year. That was the time that it took to begin receiving the materials that were needed. About the same time frame as our present COVID Amazon ordering environment. Now, we thought about going through the familial lines listed here, but it is probably unnecessary. Ezra and Nehemiah is illustrating that each of the divisions that were prescribed were, in fact, present at the time. Most of them are the grandchildren of the men who went into captivity and held the same office. One of the most interesting phrases is, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. Man, earlier in the chapter, the phrase had been in accordance to all that is written in the law by Moses, the man of God. Again, the obvious point for the original audience is that the prescribed way was followed with diligence. They did it in accordance to Moses. Now they're doing it in accordance to David. Moses' instructions were followed, and David's instructions were followed. Are y'all beginning to get the picture? With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So there's a lot of singing going on in verse 11. The ESV says they sang responsively. Another way to say that is they sang antiphonally. Some oh, yeah. translations use that word. <laughs> so it paints a, an amazing picture for us. It's the priests, the government officials, being careful to obey all that Moses and David had instructed. While they were doing it, they did it in great joy because that was part of the obedience, Hello. if you remember. Yeah. And the people, they were responsive to what these men were doing, and they responded with great shouts of joy and praise. And they, got, yes, they sang together in response to what each other were doing. Guys, the altar came first on its own foundation. Then the foundation of the temple was laid. This is the order, and the order is divine because it's prescribed by God through Moses, the man of God. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. So although there are many sympathetic sermons and teachings that exist regarding this verse, they are plainly disputed by the scripture itself, and they miss the point of the historical narrative. True. No one should be weeping in this moment. Come on! And the priest and the family heads are in absolute error. And yeah. let's look at what scripture has to say about this. Let's do it. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 12, picking up in verse 4. Sometimes it takes two. (laughs) You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. (laughs) But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, 
what you have vowed to give in your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice, rejoice in everything you have put your hands to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Amen. The command clearly from Moses was to rejoice during these types of events. Let's look at Zechariah 4, picking up in verse 6. Obviously, we're jumping forward greatly in time. You need to know that what we're commenting on here in Zechariah 4 relates to the events in Ezra 3. Verse 6, so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So in other words, it's a work of me, my design, my plan. What are you, mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it. God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Here, verse 10. Who dares? How dare you? Despise the day of small beginnings. This is God addressing them. Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Wow. The prophet Zechariah is rebuking directly, sharply, those who would despise these humble beginnings because of the comparison with some other time frame that seemed better wow. to them in their walk. Is that sinking in? Y'all getting the historical narrative? Well, it just so happens that there's another event that happens at the same festival. It's the seventh month in the same place some years later. And we have the same problem again. So I, I just want to read it. Apparently, this is a historical problem. Okay? This is Nehemiah 7, verses uh, 73. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. Does that sound familiar? Yes. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, does that sound familiar? Yes. Now slide down to Nehemiah 8 and verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep or mourn. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food. I wonder where he got that idea. And sweet drinks. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not, God, what does it say? Grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you have quoted that verse without having any idea what it means or being depressed later the same day. Because we're in historical application. The Levites calmed all the people, something I'm still trying to learn, saying, be still. 
for this day is a holy day. And in case you missed the point, do not grieve. The testimony of scripture is very clear. This occasion was not appropriate for weeping. Remember, the nation is being reconstituted. That's not sad. The altar is being reestablished. That is not sad. The foundation of the temple has been reestablished. And that also is not sad. You know, the argument that is usually put forward in the defense of this behavior is that the elders were grieving because God's glory was diminished. As if that's possible. You know, like, this one is not as good as the old one. The old one was better. Well, in reality, the previous temple had been full of idolatry during entire lifetimes of anyone alive that ever saw it. That's true. That's why it was destroyed. It was never glorious within their lifetimes. They are weeping because of the idolatry of their own expectations. And that is sin. Let's Let's just wrap it up. Moses commanded rejoicing, and that should be obeyed. Point blank. Zechariah forbid despising this beginning in favor of the good old days. days. Nehemiah sharply rebuked this behavior. The only tainted thing in this beautiful chapter, remember it started with unity. The only tainted thing in this beautiful chapter is the failure of those who should know better to recognize the glory of what God was actually doing in that time. You have to love the grandparents who caused the captivity are not getting it right after the captivity and their grandchildren are. Actually, you don't have to love that. You should say, how dare you? And I think what's worse than that is they actually go on to mar the event and they muddy a clear call that Adonai was sounding. We're going to show you that in verse 13. No one can distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Wow. We've got a slide for you in light of this last verse here. This is how Josephus commented on it. The slide is called the sin of the elders. Now the priests and Levites and the elder part of the families, recollecting with themselves how much greater and more sumptuous the old temple had been, seeing that now made how much inferior it was on account of their poverty to that which had been built of old, considered with themselves how much their happy state was sunk below what it had been of old, as well as their temple. Hereupon, they were disconsolate, <laughs> not able to contain their grief, That's crazy. and proceeded so far as to lament and shed tears on these accounts. Wow. But the people in general were contented. Amen! They were contented with their present condition. And because they were allowed to build them a temple, they desired no more, and neither regarded nor remembered, nor indeed at all tormented themselves with the comparison of that in the former temple. 
as if this were below their expectations. Wow. wow. But the wailing of the old men Uh-oh. and of the priests Uh-oh. on account of the deficiency of this temple, wow. in their opinion, <laughs> their opinion, if compared with that which had been demolished, overcame the sounds of the trumpets and the rejoicing of the people. So in the glorious reestablishment of the nation's altar, the only thing marring the event was the selfish and obtuse emotions of those that spent too much time in the idolatry of the previous temple. The setting was revival. Yes! Yes! And renewal. Come on. The word translated as shouts of joy is more literally trumpets Trumpets. of joy. Teruah. Teruah. These joyous trumpets were sounding the clear call, a clarion call, that Adonai was on the move in the nation again. And that clear call was obscured by old men weeping when they should have been Rejoicing. Good Lord. One has to wonder what would have happened if they had been more selfless and more focused on supporting the work of God in this new generation. And so that completes our historical narrative. And you're going to want to buckle up your seatbelt because we are going to make some practical applications as we go through the chapter one more time. You guys ready for that? Yeah! Well, Saints, admittedly, this is going to be a bit rapid fire, and given that we don't have a whole lot of time, we're not going to beat around the bush. So, Pastor Wade, if you would help us out and just pick up right back in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Saints, what we are learning from the example that Ezra and Nehemiah sets forth is that absolute unity of concern and of Purpose is necessary for the people of God to imitate him in oneness. I'm going to read to you from Romans 5, or Romans 15, picking up in verse 5. Listen to this with the concept of Ehad in mind. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that not elevate our concept of unity? Yes. Does it not increase your understanding of what God requires from the men and the families in this room? We don't even really need to talk about churches in town west. To glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're the enthusiasm, the joy, the rejoicing that comes from true unity. It brings glory to our Father. And this is what we must do presently as our God is leading us to do it. Round two, verse two. (laughs) Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. I'm happy that we're able to learn from their example. And one of the things that we learned is the only place that you can start is at the altar. Sin is and always has been the primary problem from which all other problems are born. Come on now. 
even in the New World, I'm talking way back, like 2,400 years after man, or B.C., <laughs> no, wrong direction, long time ago with Noah. <laughs> when he got off the boat, like John and Joy's parents when they came to this country, <laughs> the first thing that he did is recorded in Genesis 8. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and, and his son's wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the aroma, and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. There is not a problem in your life, Christian, that can be addressed without the altar of God being the very first step. Now, 30 minutes left. At the altar, something always dies. That's why it's an altar. At the altar, that which died did so so that something could live a life that no longer belonged to them. Luke 9, 22 through 26 says, And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, church, in every situation, every problem that you have, every tension, every frustration, everything that you engage in, it always starts being fixed at the altar of God. Always starts with you losing your life And then you gain life in the end. You gain protection in the end. You gain security in the end after you lose your life on the altar. It's almost like you have to face your fear, let Nabal die so that Abigail can live. Who knows? Yes. Verse 3. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Come on. Despite their fear... They built the altar. Despite their fear, they built the altar. (coughs) Guys, we get to learn from their example. Fear is always the enemy of the real expression of true biblical faith. Fear is actually the motivator for most of your disobedience. Fear that you don't have what you need. You don't have what it takes. Fear that... You won't get this, or you won't get that, or the future doesn't hold that in store for you. Fear of what happens if 
You are obedient. Oh my goodness. What happens if I do actually obey in this moment? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 is a great passage. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Yeah. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Blessed! Amen. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts. Set apart Christ as Lord. Man, build that altar. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Maybe like some of the neighbors of Israel during this time where they were trying to build the altar. Guys, the first thing to sacrifice on the altar to restore your heart is fear. That's the first sacrifice to put on there. This must be done morning and evening. A full sacrifice, a constant sacrifice in order for you to walk in any level of obedience. This daily practice precedes the larger monthly or annual events. The larger monthly or annual sacrifices. You know, the ones that everybody always thinks of. The big ones. No, we're talking about the foundation of the daily morning and evening sacrifices in your life. That's a good word. Everything starts at the altar. And only then can anything worthwhile be built. Yeah. So a good summary of this concept was verbalized by a commentator. And we put it on the slide for you. Mr. Funk and Mr. Wagnos. Mr. Funk and Wagnos. This is what they wrote. By this time, the returned remnant would find the hostility of their new neighbors awakened. Wow. Yeah. Only surprised at first to hear of their return, afterwards inclined to ridicule and despise them. When they saw them settling down in their old inhabitations as a distinct and separate people, these strangers would begin in various ways to show their dislike no doubt. and perhaps to murmur their threats. In this condition of danger, how natural to follow the example of Samuel and sacrifice to Jehovah. A very instructive lesson, by the way, for the, these gospel times. Just so our need of, a, of an atonement is the very first of our needs. Come on. Did you catch that? Just so our need of an atonement is the very first of our needs. You don't need the rescue from the situation. You need atonement. The nature of God's law, the example of God's servants, the enmity of the world of Satan combined to teach us this truth. Come on. Simply put, the altar comes first. Verse 4. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. So, saints, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles is ultimately about the salvation of the nation. That can only occur after the restoration of Israel, which begins in an altar, by the way. (laughs) This serves as a fine example for our method of evangelism. We first get the altar of our own hearts right yeah. in a perpetual kind of manner. Come on. 
then there will be an outflow from that to the rest of the world around us. Amen. The gospel flows from the altar that is in Jerusalem to the rest of the world. Just as it flows from the altar of your heart outwards towards the people around you. I'm going to pick up in Acts 1, chapter, verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the power of the Spirit was at work in the men in Jerusalem, because they got their altars right at the crucifixion, then they would be empowered to go to Judea, Samaria, and then to the surrounding Gentile world as witnesses or martyrs or sacrifices so that what started in them would go to the rest. This is how it works with you as well, Christian. Get your altar right, and then the Spirit will empower you for the benefit of others. But you cannot skip the altar. Well, let's do Acts 2.14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. How crushed was Peter at the crucifixion? Pretty crushed. But he was empowered in Jerusalem. There he was. His altar, having been purified, allowed him to be empowered. The first thing that he did was start with those around him within Jerusalem. When you get your altar right, the Spirit will empower you to move those nearest to you. Hallelujah. Acts 8, 14-17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter has now moved from Jerusalem to Samaria. In the exact order that Jesus said in Acts 1. He's moving from Jerusalem, the altar, to outward expressions. He is now being used to unite the tribes. This is the natural outflow of an altar dealt with rightly. Amen. Move with us to Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So this is the last passage in this stream. You see Peter 
bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. The first step is the altar of your heart. And every or every other step after that, it's meaningless. But getting the altar right at the beginning makes every other step powerful. And you even affect the outest, the most outward nations, the Gentile nations, with the gospel. Verse 5. After that, they presented the regular burnt offering, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. So from their example, we learned that our daily practice turns into weekly, then monthly, then annually sacrifices, practices. That's because obedience grows as it is practiced habitually. Amen! Hear me on this. You cannot bring free will offerings before you have obeyed by bringing the prescribed offerings. That's a good word. This is a great example. Matthew 5, picking up in verse 22, says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. That's because obedience grows as it's practiced habitually, and you cannot bring your free will offering before you've obeyed by bringing the prescribed offering. Thanks. We need to keep moving this evening, and we don't have time to read it. But in your own time, read Luke 13. You can see in the example of Christ himself, he has an ultimate goal that is a free will offering of his life. <coughs> But what he says to the opposition around him is today and tomorrow I'm going to continue to offer the right sacrifice until I get there. And his ultimate sacrifice was precious and worthy because the altar of his heart on a daily basis was where God intended it to be. Pastor Wade, if you get verse 6 for me. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. We learn from their example in Ezra and Nehemiah that worship and obedience began personally long before the foundation of the institution itself was actually laid. The true foundation of any local church, or let's say LCM tonight, is found in the personal devotion of the people individually. That personal devotion will grow into corporate devotion as we have one purpose and one concern and none others competing. Amen. Amen. Why are the pastors the only ones saying amen? amen. Let's do verse 7. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. I love that we get to learn from the example recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. Because it is often true that you do not currently possess everything that you need. But it's also true that obedience has to start somewhere and then it grows. There is always something in our circumstances that we can do at all times. 
If we cannot complete it, at least we can begin it and trust God. Come on. If we cannot begin, at least we can prepare to begin. Even where we do where we can do nothing ourselves. Maybe it's a mission field and you're not there. We can certainly help others engage in it. Amen. Look, Romans 13, 11 helps us with this. And do this. <laughs> Understanding the present time. That was a couple thousand years ago he said that. Yeah. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Come on. Because our salvation is nearer now than we when we first believed. Let's translate that into the New Living Translation. Don't wait! <laughs> Verse 8. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josedak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. Appointing Levites 20 years of age wow. and older 20? to supervise the 20? building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers and Kadmael and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah mm. and the sons of Hinnadad yeah. and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. Man, from their example. We learn that it is going to take all of us to complete this mission. And that we can no longer wait for 20-year-old boys. Boys who are 20 years old and not have achieved manhood yet. Now is the time that there must be 20-year-old men fully capable and ready to stand together with the brothers. For this reason, we must start younger and require more out of our young boys. One more time. What do we have to do? Start younger. You know, this reminds us of 1 John 2.14. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We need to start thinking of these young boys in our midst as men that we are raising up younger, better, stronger, and they will be men at the age of 20, ready to stand together for the task. Listen, dads, before we move on, that only happens one way. Require more of them starting right now. Amen. And the reason that you don't is you don't require very much of yourself either. Raise their standard and raise yours twice as high. Amen. foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. Verse 10 says, the priests in their vestments. From this example, we can learn several things. The priests began to praise in their vestments while the foundation for the temple was being laid. You guys are priests yes. that wear the appropriate vestments of Christ. Amen. Revelation 19.8 says, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Many men profess words that are not reflected in their own deeds. But you are to be men who practice, whose practice matches your profession of faith. Amen. 
I want to say tonight that you are impressive men in your own right. Amen. But the most impressive thing about any sincere believer is when your hard work has brought you a profitable and a well-earned reputation. It's like Proverbs 14.23. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Church, you are clothed in the vestments of Christ and are to be ministers whose verbal profession is substantiated by the hard work of practicing the attitude of Christ. Your hard work will be rewarded. Hear Paul's words to the Corinthians and hear it with confidence in your own personal standing. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. True. Ezra 3 verse 10 says, They took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. This phrase should perfectly describe you. You should take your place in this house. Take your place in your family and among your brothers. Hear me on this, especially the men in this room. Never shirk any task, no matter how difficult or inglorious. That's a good word. Your ambition must be to serve rather than rule. You learn to reach for towels and not for titles. Amen. This is the making of great men of God. This is the making of great fathers, of great ministers of the gospel, which you are because you have a heart for the least. Just like Jesus did. And again, you should hear Paul's words with confidence in your standing. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 3. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in Purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. This is what it means to wear the vestments. You're clothed in this model, this attitude that is all about the purpose of Christ. This is because you have wholeheartedly taken your position within this body and you will settle for nothing less than God unity. The second part of the phrase is our Ezra-like interpretation that has all the authority of a prophet. It is that our place is prescribed by the king of Israel. Amen. From the beginning, all of us had goals. We had plans. We had stupid ideas that we thought were grand. Yeah. And desires, but we had the opportunity to lay them all down for the prescribed way. We want to tell you a secret. You get to do that every morning and evening. You go back to the altar and lay fear on it. Prescribed offerings come in advance of free will offerings. Or the free will offerings are not acceptable. We are to wear Ephesians 2.10 like a vestment for all to see. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Your place within this ministry was prepared in advance for you, and no other person could fulfill it. You were designed 
for the prescribed place that you now stand in. This is as obvious to us as it would be to walk up in Ezra's day and see a Levitical priest wearing a Levitical vestment standing at a Levitical altar. It's quite obvious. Let's move to the next part of the verse in Ezra 3.11. It says, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. He is good! His love to Israel endures forever. When priests are standing in their prescribed places, they proclaim in unison, God is good. And his love, his chesed, endures forever. This is the proclamation that flows out of the lives of true ministers. This is our aim, to project this sentiment. And not to do it just verbally, but to have our verbal profession actually match our practice. This is a constant source of edification to everyone who is around us. That's how the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Pastor Wade, we have seven minutes and two verses, and we can do it. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. What do you want to do? Come on, church, say happy day. Happy day. Man, it is a happy day for us because a clear clarion trumpet call is being sounded in this house. It's being sounded by God. It's being sounded by our priests, our pastors, and you are hearing it in this house. We do not have elders, family heads, or priests that weep when we should be rejoicing. Amen! We have learned from the example of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we have heeded the correction. Yes! Glory day! Eureka! We are being perfected, and the results are golden. We found the formula! Last time. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Yeah, there's not e- among us, there's not even going to be the sound of weeping because as one man, we will come together in this season with a single sound of joy yeah. that proclaims the glory of our good King. As we're going to end speaking to you about what we see in you as members of one body called LCM. At LCM, we're assembling as one man. In God-like unity. At LCM, we're taking steps as a matter of first importance to get the altar right. And to do it first. At LCM, our daily practice of sacrifice, morning and evening, is actually turning into weekly, monthly, and yearly practice. That's going to build the temple of God himself. At LCM... What starts in our altar will flow outward to the ends of the earth and will touch the nation. Come on. At LCM, the call that we give, it will be distinct. The call will be clear. The call will be undefiled by any weeping 
during this glorious time of our renewal and our revival. It's yours, Pastor. Oh, <coughs> what a fantastic word. Yes. We're assembling as one man in Godlike unity. Can somebody say amen? Amen. We're taking steps as a matter of first importance to get our altars right. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Daily practice. Come on, you know that morning and evening sacrifice? It's turning into something more as we continue to do that. We're seeing what that practice is going to be that it's going to take to build the temple of God right here on earth. Can somebody say amen? Amen. What starts in our altar will flow outward to the ends of the earth. Man, we get to see that as faith is building. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Our call. And Paul's all excited. Talk about Clarion, talking about Terua. Oh, glory day. Come on, glory day. The call that we have here is distinct, it's clear, and it's going to be undefiled by weeping during this glorious time. Can somebody say amen? Amen. I want one verse. 2 Corinthians, actually two verses. 8, verses 11 and 12. Now finish the work. Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> you should have responded better. <laughs> now finish the work. Yeah! So that your eager willingness to do it, here in this, your willingness, is matched by your actual completion of it. But it gets better. According to your means. Oh, hang on. You're going to get it. Next verse. For if the willingness is there, you're the most willing group of people I've ever seen. But that's not where it stops. Look at what it goes on to. If the willingness is there, the gift, you getting things right on the altar, is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. You have what you need because God has given it to you. That should bring the utmost amount of joy and rejoicing inside of you. This is not the time for weeping or mourning because he's given you what you need. The willingness is acceptable according to what you have right now, even as you are working to see him develop these things in your life. Stand to your feet with us. Sam Luke put up Psalm 30, verse 11. As we read this, we're going to see clearly what we have. You turned my wailing into dancing. Hallelujah! You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Verse 12. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be unified and sound a trumpet voice of praise before God. Paul's going to grab that small shofar over there. And when he he begins to sound that shofar, you yourself will become that same trumpet of joy. And as one voice and one man, we're going to let the heavens be filled with our joy that dwells up inside of us. Are you ready? 